This podcast was made possible by Thrive AP, a transition to practice solution for PAs, NPs, and the facilities that employ them. Thrive AP's educational curriculums accelerate skill application of advanced practice providers, improving outcomes, retention, and career satisfaction. Thank you to Thrive AP for partnering with our show. Hi, everyone. Welcome to White Coats of the Round Table. My name is Mike Asbeck. I'm here with John McDonald. We are a healthcare podcast focused on non-clinical careers, burnout prevention, and career development. John, good morning. Good morning, Mike. How are you doing today? I'm great. It, it sounds like you got an early start to the day, and we were just talking before we came on that uh, early mornings are really the best way to, to get it going. I don't know about you, but I love, there's nothing better than waking up early before my kids are up having a cup of coffee, getting an hour of work knocked out before the day starts. It's it's really quite lovely. Yeah, I I would love to get up early. I uh, used to get up earlier uh, before my kids were older. Now they're getting to that age where they're finally staying in bed uh, till a little bit later. So I get to do my favorite morning dunch, uh, dunch? punch dance routine in the bar. That's on Footloose soundtrack, so perfect. Yeah, it's a good morning. I'm sure that's exactly how you start the morning. Yeah, you, you joke, but that's probably exactly what it is—a whole choreographed routine. Yeah, it is. It is lovely for listeners. Uh, John and I both have kids that are roughly the same age, and we're entering that stage of life. I, I've actually—it's been described to me many times by parents and people that are maybe a little bit farther along in the parenting journey—that you have this little golden window where. All the kids are old enough that they're wiping their own butts. They're somewhat independent where you don't have to be actively engaged in preventing them from killing themselves every day. Mm -hmm. And yet sports hasn't started yet. Teenage hormones hasn't started yet. So you get this little golden window where they still like you, where they still want to be around you, but you don't have to change diapers, you know, spoon feed them, all the things that come with baby stage. And it's, it's really a lovely little phase of life. Yeah, we, it's fun too, because when I was younger, I remember getting up as early as I could to try and beat my siblings. I had five siblings, <laughs> tried to beat them to uh, my parents' room where the Nintendo, the NES was, mm -hmm. and we would play Dick Tracy and the Simpsons. And now it's funny because my son wants to start playing uh, PC gaming with me. And so it's, uh, it's really I'm looking forward to it more than I think he is. Yeah, agreed. I uh, I took my kids golfing for the first time last week or the week before, and it was a lot of fun to have them show interest in activities that I enjoy. Yeah, we're, we're trading out Coca Melon for going to the driving range. I'll take it. Wait a second, Coco, bro, aren't you in psychiatry? Yeah, isn't Coco Melon like destructive to the human? I'm sure it is, but you know, <laughs> at times, low effort parenting is required. So yeah, that's just true. Horizontal parenting. Yeah, there you go. Well, as you can see, today is another off-script episode, and in part because John and I like doing off-scripts. It allows us to do unedited, more relaxed. We can kind of give the listeners a, a bit of a behind-the-scenes. This is maybe the, the closest replication of what inspired the podcast. John and I sitting around talking about healthcare issues, you know, big-picture things, and you know, just trying to find solutions and realizing that others may also have these questions. But the other reason we're doing all these off-scripts is we're lazy. And we don't want to do a whole lot of editing. We want to make sure that we're keeping things a little bit more low-key during the summer. So, John, today I've got a really interesting off-script topic for you. Yeah. I recently, if you haven't noticed, we have a really wonderful newsletter for the podcast, and it's actually been growing quite quickly. 
So that's been a, a fun little project. But recently I wrote an article about whether additional schooling is beneficial. And let me tell you a little bit of the background of what inspired me to do that, because I think it's actually a really cool uh, thing for, to share with listeners. So someone who actually listens to the show quite regularly reached out and said that they were a PA and that they were leaving clinical medicine, taking a pay cut to do so, to go work in a healthcare recruiting staffing firm that was started by a colleague of theirs. And so, uh, you know, kind of startup entrepreneurial venture, and he was going to do business development. So the whole idea, from my understanding, is reaching out to large health agencies, making those, you know, connections and, and soliciting or looking for contracts to use the staffing company. Mm -hmm. So he reached out to us just to see what our thoughts were, A, on the big career jump, and you know, I'm really excited that he's doing that. And we maybe had some role of inspiring that that change, but... His thoughts or his question for me was, is it worth getting an MBA? Is it worth getting additional schooling as he makes the jump from clinical to non-clinical to help maybe accelerate him down that path of non-clinical career? So it's a great question. I think there's a lot of people that, that have this question. I actually have another colleague who was a PA, was unhappy with her clinical role, went and got an MBA, mm -hmm. and then was frustrated that the MBA didn't really you know, move okay. things along. And I think that's kind of how I want to frame it is, well, is schooling necessary? And then if yes, where do we fit that in, in a non-clinical pursuit? You, you and I had many conversations, uh, prior to even starting the podcast. If you remember, I was struggling with the idea of, do I want to go back and get my MBA? And I got accepted into a couple of programs and I didn't end up doing it. Um, now I can't, just go. We're on edited. Oh, <laughs> um, so I didn't know whether it was worth it or not. I had asked my employer about it. They weren't keen on it either. Um, they didn't really necessarily want to pay for that. And so I was going to do it on my own buck, got accepted into two different programs. And I ended up delaying because I kept on getting a lot of different information and I wasn't wanting to spend tens of thousands of dollars to get an MBA on a, I don't want to say on a whim, but there wasn't enough evidence for me to say, this is absolutely worth it. So it was too much of a risk for me, uh, especially when we already had some other stuff working on our end. And from what I was told by many different people who had either done an MBA or was successful without an MBA is the best thing about being a part of an MBA or, you know, working through your capstone projects with other, uh, other folks in your industry is the network that you, that you gain. That's, that's pretty much it. Cause the MBA at this point doesn't mean too much is, is what I was told, uh, from many different people. So it's, of course, it's, it's not, written in stone this is just subjective information but uh, what i like to hear your point of view before i dive deeper into why i didn't make that that decision yeah i think it's actually a good contrast because i know we like you said we had a lot of conversations about it i did my doctorate from 2019 to 2021 so it actually worked out well because i did the bulk of it during covid when we were all locked down and right i had lots of spare time but I know when you were trying to navigate the MBA, in part, you were wanting to pursue the MBA without a specific plan of how you were going to use it. You were hoping that mm -hmm. the MBA would be an additional credential 
that would make you more marketable to you know executive level jobs mm-hmm. at an administrative or industry level. And I agree with you. I think ultimately, you know, you you back down off of that just because you weren't confident that the ROI was there. And I think that's a, a really hard thing for people to do because very often if they're unhappy in their job or if they're looking to make that jump, they see schooling is that, you know, well, if I do this, then that. And I mm-hmm. think the fact that you said, you know what? No, I'm just, I'm not doing this if I don't get a hundred percent guarantee or as close to that as I can get that I'm going to get the ROI. On my end, though, the reason I did schooling was because I was fairly confident that I could give it ROI. So if you'd like, I, I think I've talked about it in the past, but I'd happily share that story of how I came to the decision. Yeah. And then we can contrast them. So I, so PA, NP, and nursing, really the the only remaining health, licensed healthcare professions that are not a terminal degree. And I would actually say, we can talk about this a little bit later on, that for people that don't have a terminal degree, if you've got a master's degree or you know a BSN, that there is maybe a little bit more upside and value to going back to school because I really do think that in healthcare, if you don't have a terminal degree, you're probably not going to be considered for those executive level positions, yep. those decision-making positions. But So I had my master's in, in PA and I was starting to do more and more industry work. By 2019, I was, you know, probably maybe 25% of my income was was consulting, maybe a third. And I was on an advisory committee and it was me, a whole bunch of physicians on this committee. And then there was only three PAs or NPs. So I was the only PA. And then there was a NP who was also master's level and then a DNP. So a doctorally trained NP. And we were sitting on this committee and the doctorally trained NP was not clinical. She was academic. She hadn't seen patients in years. And we're giving our opinions, we're giving our thoughts within this committee. And I got the sense through the meeting that anytime myself or the other master's level NP would say something, they would always nod. And then they would turn to the doctorally trained NP and be like, what are your thoughts on that? Yep. And like the doctorally trained NP was not dumb. It's it's not that she was, you know, doing poorly, but at the same time, it was very clear that she was not clinically, um, you know, up to speed that it had been a while since she had been in the trenches seeing patients. And yet everything she said, the the company that had facilitated this advisory committee, they just lapped it up. And they're like, oh yeah, that's such a great idea. I would say almost the identical thing. And they'd be like, hmm. And then she would say it. And they'd be like, wow, that's amazing. So the wheels started to turn. And then at the end of the meeting, they said that they said exactly what I was suspicious of. They said, we are just so thankful to have a doctoral level NP, a titan in their field, and yep. someone that is just a, a a leader in all that they do. And then I was like, my light bulb moment. I was like, ah, okay. So if I want to be taken seriously, if I want to have a seat at the table at these higher levels, I need a doctorate. I, you know, mm-hmm. they they don't see a master's level as someone that is knowledgeable. And that's the sad part maybe about the way our education system is set up is we we do take these degrees as placeholders for competence or intelligence. And maybe we should yeah. do that. But so that's why I went, I got it and did the math and figured that I was probably going to be able to up my consulting rates. I was going to increase my consulting role because of the doctorate. And I got my doctorate in healthcare leadership. So it was not clinical. It was purely focused on administration, leadership, mm-hmm. things like that. But within, I think, 18 months of getting my doctorate, I had already 
made back more in consulting by increasing my rates than I had paid for schooling. So it paid off rather quickly for me, but that was kind of the, the, the journey that I took to get there. Um, but in that case, like I said, I was very highly confident that the money I would spend on tuition, I would get back rather quickly. Uh, a point that you made, I want, I want to comment on, uh, you had mentioned in that meeting that you gave the same response as the DNP and kind of, you just were passed over, looked over. I can't tell you, um, how wild it is to me when I encounter even just even pharmacy technicians certified or not, who are more competent than some of the pharmacists I've worked with. <laughs> um, and it is, I think societally, we, we do look at the degrees and say, you have more value in the workplace because of that degree. Um, I, I also remember when I went for a position I didn't think I was going to get, I didn't think I was qualified for. And when I did, when I mentioned to this, uh, employer that I was concerned that I didn't do a residency and they mentioned you finished pharmacy school, you got your PharmD, you know how to find the answers. That's all we care about. And to me, that was like, I had a lot of respect for that, that response because they didn't necessarily need me to be BCPS certified or, um, you know, specialized in any sort of way. They just said, you, we know, and we're confident that you know how to find the answers. So we're not worried about that. We just want somebody who is a good team player, a uh, good employee and wants to take care of the patients. So it I think it depends on what industry you're in and the employer that you're going to work for. Uh, there are some employers that I've, I've talked to in the past who they, they'll hire you, but with the caveat that you have to get these additional certifications or an EMBA in two to three years following hire. Uh, and to me, it, what that screams of is it's just an old idea that you need to have your MBA. This institution values this level of education. And so we want every one of our potential leaders to be in that level of education. It's just old hat. You know, they'll continue on with that. But I, I think you've probably experienced it too. You've probably had RNs uh, who were more competent at the clinical aspect of their jobs over a PA, NP, maybe even a, dare I say, a physician. Well, yeah, I think it depends on the role. And, right. you know, there's to use physicians as an example, physicians are at the top of the clinical food chain in the sense that they have this very long, extensive, deep training that gives them an expertise in that subject matter. But I wouldn't necessarily look at a neurosurgeon and then say, yeah, they're going to have more knowledge on endocrinology. Um, you know, their training was incredibly deep and incredibly uh, long and arduous, but was also very narrowly focused into that one subspecialty. And similarly, I think this is where you're talking about MBAs. You know, we we spend so much of our, our life didactically learning clinical medicine, learning how to be the best clinician that we can be. And there's really no time spent on the business of healthcare, mm -hmm. which I think is so bizarre because healthcare is, what is it? It's like, you know, one of the top contributors to our economy. It's, it's one of the most massive sectors of our economy. 
So it's a huge business. There's billions, if not trillions of dollars in healthcare. And yet at the same time, us healthcare clinicians are not necessarily given any formal training on the business of medicine. So I, isn't that why I know, isn't it crazy? And so I do think there is value of additional training, but you're right. I, I think that the idea that this has to be done at a formal institution where you pay, you know, $50,000 for an MBA, that's the part that makes me a little bit hesitant, especially when, you know, if you're a physician and you're making, let's say, 220000 a year, if you take a role where you're maybe more of a healthcare administrator and you get an MBA, I'm guessing you're probably not going to do better than what you'd be doing clinically from a comp standpoint. So spending 50 grand to then take a pay cut, um, that seems incredibly frustrating. I think there's other avenues where you can pursue that. So this actually ties to my thoughts on it is I think if you already have a terminal degree, so pharmacy, um, physician, you know, if you've already got a doctoral level of training, even if it is primarily clinical, the ROI to go back to school, maybe for an MBA or an MHA, it's really tough for me to, to sell that because I think the, the opportunity to increase your income potential is going to be rather limited. Like I said earlier, for master's level or for nursing, I think there maybe is more upside because a terminal degree does matter. A lot of times it gets you a foot in the door or a seat at the table. But if you've already got that terminal degree going back for specific training, whether it be you know administration, business, whatever, I'm always very hesitant on that one. Now, there's a difference if you are taking a role that specifically requires that. Like you said, there's some yeah. old guard that says, hey, all of our administrators have an MBA. Great. Yep. So if you, I would hope then as a clinician, you can move into that role with the agreement or assumption of I am going to now complete my MBA in this period of time. Hopefully, if it's a large healthcare system, they would give you some sort of tuition assistance or reimbursement to help mm -hmm. with that. Um, MSL is another great example. You know, you you really can't be an MSL if you're not doctorally trained. But I do know of a lot of PAs and NPs that will go into an MSL role, an entry level role, and then do so with the agreement that they'll pursue their doctorate uh, while mm -hmm. in that role. So there are opportunities to do that. It's it's tough because I think a lot of times people that are maybe unhappy in their clinical role see going back to school as an out or an, as a, as an escape hatch, and I don't necessarily think that that's where schooling fits in. I think there is a yeah. role for it, but it's the role for it is when you already are really well-defined on what your career path is going to be, and you know that that additional schooling is going to suffer. Okay, so if I can interrupt, because the point that I, I've been thinking about and wanted to make, when I was first in pharmacy school, I remember uh, it was orientation, first week where we were all introducing each other you know what what's the uh what the program is going to look like and one of the questions that was posed was how many of you currently work in a pharmacy and only maybe 50 percent of the people mm -hmm. raised their hands the other 50 percent never had stepped foot in a pharmacy before and that blew my mind mm -hmm. that you would go into a career that you don't know anything about except what a glass door told you. Um, now, going into an MBA program, I think it would be wise if you have intention behind why you're doing it. So, say for us, Mike, with the podcast, or you know, we are we are working more towards educating uh, providers or those with terminal degrees, uh, 
some APPs, pharmacists on a multitude of, of subjects, it might behoove us to get education in a certain area to help our, um, our listeners out or those we contract with. So going into a program with an intention that this is why I'm doing this thing and I have a goal in mind, that would, that would make complete sense. But to go into a potential uh, MBA program or another doctoral master's program just to just with the hope that you might get something that you're hoping would make you happy, I, that's probably not a wise decision. Correct. I totally agree. I think if you're going in, I mean, we can even broaden this to just career in general, is that if you don't have a, a firm plan, if you don't you know, have exactly in your mind what you want to accomplish, you're going to end up working really hard, but in an unfocused manner that probably doesn't lead to results. We've talked about earlier, I'm a big proponent of frequently sitting down and saying, okay, where am I at currently? Where do I aspire to be from a career standpoint in six months, one year, five years? And then making sure that your efforts are moving you in the right direction. Mm -hmm. You know, if you want to eventually move into health tech, then, you know, doing extra tasks or extra volunteer work at your job that doesn't move you closer to that goal of being in health tech is going to add me, you know, maybe add stress. It's going to add a lot of responsibility, but not necessarily get you closer to that goal versus if you want to be in health tech and you are volunteering on the medical informatics committee, if you are maybe taking, you know, massive online open courses on how to code or, you know, understanding the role of health tech and in the way that clinicians can help there, you're advancing your skill set. You're bringing yourself closer to that end goal. We also have to be careful too for those programs offering these a la carte um, degrees or educational seminars. I think about AI. Currently, how many programs out there to get an eight to 12 week degree or certification in AI? You know, learn AI in eight weeks. That's impossible to learn AI in eight weeks. So there, there are programs out there that are predatory in the sense that it is a money grab and you really should investigate the potential um, educational company business that you might be applying to, seeing what other people say about it, see what your colleagues think about it, see what your administration thinks about it. What value does it have in the marketplace? Because if, if it doesn't have value in the marketplace, be careful. Don't, don't make emotional decisions. I think there's so many opportunities to do free courses too. I mean, Harvard, I believe Yale, Stanford. MIT. Yeah. Great. A lot of them will have courses that you can take. So if you're looking to build your knowledge, mm -hmm. I think thankfully, especially when we get out of the clinical role, where maybe in clinic settings, what degree you have obviously still matters. And a lot of times it's tied to your licensing. But when you get into these non-clinical roles, I think the, there's much more of a meritocracy where if you have the skill set, then that's going to be the most important thing. So if you're taking these courses, even if it doesn't lead to a degree, you go on to Harvard and you take a couple of the online lectures so that you have a better understanding of AI, for example. I think yeah. that can go a long way as well. The, go ahead. So, yeah, continuing education um, as, as a strategy to land new jobs or to find a position that you're more satisfied with, if you don't have that degree on your CV and you end up getting an interview anyways, 
And in that conversation, you're able to stay up with the conversation because you have taken these free courses or you've talked to other folks. And if you're in IT, going into IT or health tech, you've built that network. Um, maybe you've done some side projects for a friend. Uh, maybe you've done one of these open courses. That conversation with the recruiter or hiring manager is going to look a lot better if you can put practical applications in into that conversation and not just say, yeah, I got this degree, like prove that you know what you're talking about. Cause I don't think, I don't think any hiring manager is really truly going to care how you got the knowledge as long as you can function in the workplace. Cause it's a business. We just, they want to make money. And if you can do that for them, they probably don't care how you got the knowledge. Agreed. Unless you stole it. Yeah. <laughs> so, so let me pivot a little bit. So we talked about whether we should go back to school and, you know, risks, benefits of doing so. And I think the key takeaway for listeners is that if you're considering going back to school, make sure that you are confident that the money and time spent on an additional degree will move you closer to your career goals. Make sure that you have a plan before you start a degree and that you're not doing the degree to try and then formulate the plan based on that. But here's another pivot. What about different strategies to get schooling paid for? We alluded to it a little bit that there's some companies, I know a lot of pharma companies will actually pay for additional schooling if you are an MSL and you're looking to go get your PhD or, or something like that. But the other way that I think uh, can be quite interesting on my end, this is maybe not applicable to everyone, but I didn't pay for my doctorate. So that's the part that when I was talking earlier about ROI, it was also an easier decision for me because I didn't pay for it. So I spent eight years in the Army Reserve and got the GI Bill as a result. So they paid for my schooling and ended up, it was $0 out of pocket for me. So obviously there was still a significant time commitment. There was an opportunity cost because I was doing less consulting work, spending more of my evenings doing uh, doctoral work. But at the same time, that made it a much easier decision because I did not have to take student loans. I did not have to pay $40,000 out of pocket to do this. But do you have any thoughts on external funding sources? Because I've got a, a couple different strategies, but I'd love to hear your thoughts before we talk about it. Um, I mean, number one is always asking your current employer. Like you mentioned, uh, there are employers who value uh, the investments in their employees. So again, you, you, we talked about the old guard. We require this MBA if you want to be administration. But then there are others that I say, like, we just want you to progress uh, in your career. We will help you um, get to the next point, especially if uh, that means you are going to transition to a needed area of the business. Uh, they'll definitely be more apt to pay for your schooling. So trying to find how does your, your passion uh, for further education, match with your employer's needs in the workplace, because uh, that is leverage uh, it, to get that paid for. I think that's one for sure. Now, the question, or rather the statement that's always put out there is, oh, get a grant, a uh, scholarship. Uh, there are plenty of scholarships out there for even healthcare professionals uh, within professional organizations as well. Uh, so... I would say first, we need to be asking our employers and seeing what the benefits are, even just talking to your HR, your boss might not even know. Uh, so 
I would start there as strategy number one, but we can go back and forth. So here's a, I think so often in the show, we talk about that there's no secret sauce, that there's no cheat code, that there's no way to snap your fingers and have all these career improvements. But here's one that I think as is maybe a cheat code. I take a lot of students. I have um, faculty appointment at three different universities, but I also have clinical affiliation agreements. I think I'm up to 10 different schools that I take students here at my job. And most schools, when you take students, they will either pay you an honorarium for taking students or they will offer you tuition credit. So just to give an example, at some of the schools that I take students from, I'll get anywhere from $500 to $750 per student, or I can take a tuition credit from them instead. And for some of the schools, I get one course per student taken, or at the minimum, on some of my um, less generous affiliation agreements, I get one credit hour per student taken. So a lot of times this graduate work, the credit hours are anywhere from you know 700 to 900 per credit hour. So it's a really good trade-off. I just pulled up for RIT. We'll give them a little bit of a, a free promotion here. So RIT is a, a school in Rochester. So in John's neck of the woods, and I have a, a, a faculty appointment with them. And I also, through my clinical affiliation agreement, I can take up to two courses per year as faculty for free. Let's look at some degrees or, or coursework that they have here that maybe would be helpful for a clinician that's looking to break out of clinical medicine. We've got a master's in software engineering. That could be helpful. We've got a technology entrepreneurship advanced certification. We've got a Lean Six Sigma advanced certification. We have computer engineering. Where was the imaging? We have human computer interaction master's degree. We have health and well-being management masters. We have a health systems management masters, a health informatics masters. We have a healthcare finance advanced certification. So a lot of really cool opportunities where if, once again, don't just get a degree and hope that it works out. But if you said, I want to be in health informatics, I want to be in health tech, and you think a master's or an additional degree would get you there, then potentially find a school that has a degree that looks interesting that may help you and seek out a clinical affiliation agreement to take students for them because you may actually be able to get the degree self-funded just by taking students. They're always looking for new preceptors. If I, if I can, um, when I was originally being uh, talked to about going into academics, uh, not too long ago, one of the offers that were given to me, they said, listen, we, we understand that ac academia is lower than industry, but there are other benefits as well. And any degree that you want to get from the school, uh, you don't even have to be full-time or tenured. Uh, you can get those degrees. So one of the degrees that they had asked me if I wanted to do was the uh, get the degree in the DPH, Doctorate of Public Health, um, which has, especially in this area in upstate New York, with affiliations with the government as well. There's there's a lot of benefit in getting a DPH, but I couldn't necessarily go for that because I couldn't foresee how I would utilize that and what I find to be important to me. So it wasn't a carrot for me, but it would definitely be a carrot for other people though. Um, you just have to find those relationships and organizations who want to uh, promote you uh, provide you a better, uh, more satisfactory life. 
Yeah, I agree. I uh, aspirationally, my ultimate degree that I wanted to get was a PhD in healthcare economics from Johns Hopkins. And it would have been, you know, four years, 80 grand. And it just wasn't worth it. The ROI wasn't there for me, even though my passion or interest was there. So I think there's many opportunities. I think we're both supportive of additional schooling in the right circumstances. Is that a fair way to put it? I don't want the the takeaway from this to be that we're anti-schooling. But I do think that as the world continues to change and information in education becomes more and more accessible, even what we're trying to do here, where our goal with this is to try and make a lot of this really high quality educational information available that's free at the end user. We don't we don't want this behind a paywall necessarily. We want this to be accessible for people that are looking to advance or you know find more meaning in their career. And there's so many opportunities to do that that if you do pay for formal education, if you're looking to get that degree, whether it be for the networking benefits like you said earlier or because your next job or the job that you're pursuing requires it, just make sure that you're confident that you're going to get a good ROI before you spend all that time and money in it. So my last my last point, if I may, is I'm going to put a little bit of a sour taste in some people's mouths here. I have a very difficult time wanting to give uh, academic institutions money at this point, uh, especially when you see an increase at over like 3,000% in the last 20, 25 years in college education, the cost of it compared to income and living costs. And then we hear about these legacy funds that are millions and millions, sometimes billions of dollars that are just being stored away uh, for no other reason than to store it away. I better stop now before I say something that I won't get hired for in the future uh, <laughs> because I, I just don't want to give more money to institutions who absolutely do not need it, especially in education where in America... It's something that we value and we tell our children, we really want you to go to school. We want you to get degrees because it, it can promise you a more satisfactory life. Uh, but it has become somewhat of a predatory business and the ROI isn't always there because how, how many of, now we don't always have to talk about healthcare here, but how many of your friends or acquaintances do you know who had a degree who lost their job with COVID and now has, has a very difficult time getting to the same industry or even getting close to what they need before. Yep. I think you're right. I don't know if you listen, but I'm a big fan of Scott Galloway, the Prof G podcast, and he's actually trying to be disruptive in the educational space where they're trying to figure out a way to leverage technology to basically give a, an elite level education at 10% of the cost. You know, the idea being that really what you get when you go to an Ivy league school, the quality of education is not, any better than what you can get online now. I mean, you can go to YouTube and get an incredible high-level education in pretty much whatever you want. So what comes from these degrees or these tuition dollars is it's a sorting mechanism. It's a scarcity mechanism. So it's, you know, gives you something that says that you are above the rest. It gives you access to a network. My brother is a West Point grad and his current job came from that alumni network. And so it gives you access to a prestigious alumni network, but all of those things are also gatekeeping um, that potentially can be a negative as we're, you know, trying to help lift people up. We're trying to promote equity and equality and all of those things can be maybe a little bit difficult as well. So I'm hoping that there is more disruption in the space. I'm hoping, like you're saying, 
that there's there's more of an embrace of these alternate educational paths that are maybe not as formal but still give you the skill set. So I think that's a great place to end it. I think it's funny too. I when I went to pharmacy school, Mike, I I applied to St. John Fisher College and that was the only one because I got into PA program and and an OT program outside of Rochester. I chose pharmacy, but I, the only place I applied to was Fisher because it was close to home. And St. John Fisher is a local Catholic private school. Um, it's big for nursing, for education, uh, for primary and secondary education, as well as finance. And I can't tell you how many times I will meet in somebody a couple of generations ahead of me and say, hey, where'd you go to school? And I'll say, I went to St. John Fisher. And they, you know, they gave me one of those things <laughs> because they're like, yeah, me too, you know. And it usually are finance bros or they're in, in administration. And it's like a good old boys club. Like, I didn't mean to do that. Uh, that's not why I chose it. But there is an immediate network just because I went to a private school. So there are unintended consequences to these things. Uh, I'll take it though. I I don't mind using that. Um, so it, what I will end with is uh, don't be afraid to get more education, but do not go into further education without knowing exactly why you're doing it and understanding the ROI and the risks there. Precisely. That's a good summary. So let's transition over to personal items. And once mm-hmm. again, we always like to finish with a personal item because healthcare can be all-consuming and we want to make sure we retain our humanity. So, John, we had a couple episodes where you weren't here and it was really tough for yeah. me because I had to actually come up with personal items on my own instead of just copying yeah, yours. Yeah, right. So why don't you go first so I can copy you? Okay. Um. So, man, personal items. We already talked about my thumb, right? Oh, so- we talked about your thumb, yes. I got to tell you, I'm... I'm back at the wood carving. Oh Lord! Uh, and my, I can, I'm getting feeling back in my thumb, which is just in time to lacerate another digit. A hundred percent. But no, uh, for personal items, uh, truly, I think getting up early is is one of the things I've been wanting to do. And now that the kids are staying in bed later, uh, I used to go on walks in the morning, used to exercise in the morning, uh, used to read, used to meditate. And now I get to do it again. Um, so this morning I was up with my five-year-old who came in to let me know that uh, there's a bug on the ground. And we spent a lot of time figuring out what this bug. He goes, I think this bug is dancing. And I said, <laughs> I said, oh, yeah, his name's Ted. And he looks at me. He's like, you know, he, he has a name. I was like, yeah, he, he's my friend. His name's Ted, Ted Dancing. And I laughed internally. Um, and then I kicked him out of the house because he didn't know who Ted Dancing was. So we, we had a great morning uh, playing with bugs, messing with the dog, uh, making coffee together. So I, I know that's not necessarily the most exciting for everybody else to hear, but getting up in the morning and having a good morning with your kids is rare and beautiful when it happens. I completely agree. I work early, so I start my day around seven, or I start at work around seven, but I 
like it because I also get out early. So when the kids are in school, I'm usually home between four and four thirty, and we get a little bit of time before dinner, and that's really wonderful protected family time. But I know exactly what you mean on those rare mornings where maybe I'm not seeing patients, so I'm you know getting to the office a little bit later, or I'm speaking and I'm not leaving to go to the airport until later in the day. Having those mornings where you just sit down, you have a cup of coffee, you get to have breakfast with the kids. If it's during the school year, you see them off on the bus. It really is just, it's wonderful. It's peaceful. So I would also echo the value of early mornings. I I would strongly encourage anyone that's listening that if you're getting up and just rolling out of bed and going to work, at least a couple of times, try just getting up an hour earlier. And like John said, go for a walk or even get a cup of coffee and just sit on your patio and read a book. Start the day off with a little bit of calm, a little bit of introspective mindfulness. I think it really, really can go a long way. Um, Exercise in the morning is also helpful for me personally. I actually prefer doing it at the end of the day to kind of separate work from home. But I think having that time in the morning that's a little bit more peaceful and less chaotic can be amazing, especially if you have kids where the morning is always chaotic. Mm Mm-hmm. So personal item for me, I, we're recording this in on August 1st. We're actually a little bit ahead of schedule. So I think this is going to release in mid-August, but it's still relevant. I, uh, I'd i love to just say an ode to summer that August is the most common month of the year for vacation in the U.S., uh, in most of the developed world too, because Europe basically takes the whole month of August off. Yeah, But there's just something lovely about August where the summer's coming to a close We've got a, a couple of vacations coming up, including you know s- small weekend trips, but then a big one-week trip with the whole family. And school's right around the corner. You're starting to get that sense like the nights are getting a little bit cooler. NFL training camp is starting up. So you're starting to get that feeling of fall coming. And yet there's still a lot of fun summer activities in these final weeks of summer that are just lovely. I love, you know, vacations with the kids right now. It's such a fun age where you get to see all the wonder and excitement that comes with these new experiences. So I love August. I think it's really a fun time in part because of the excitement that's building for back to school, for football season. We're obviously in Buffalo, so everyone's excited for the Bills. Uh, I would argue that August, September, October, November is the best time of year. October, November is, so if I could marry a season, it would be fall. I love fall. Um, I don't get sunburn as often. Uh, I finally look okay in clothing because as a redhead, you have to wear flannel or something like that. So like finally, I feel a little bit more attractive in the mirror. Um, And then the smell of leaves, uh, cider with a little bit of bourbon in it and some cinnamon. Yep. I mean, yep. Agreed. It's, it's, (laughs) It's peak time of year. That's for sure. All right, everyone. Well, thank you for joining us this week. As always, we are White Coats of the Roundtable. If you like what you hear, consider subscribing, even leave us a review. If you don't like what you hear, definitely don't review us. And until we talk next week, this is Mike and John with White Coats of the Roundtable. Have a great day, everyone.